0: ever warrant the arrest for the murder of William who who is the gas station attendant.
1: But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. One of the first witnesses, in fact, the very first witness that we covered in the case of the murder of Bill Little was a man named Gerardo Gutierrez. Based on the earliest reports available, Gerardo, or Jerry, was the only person who may have actually gotten a good look at Bill's killer. Jerry described walking into the Clark Station on Empire to pay for his $3 worth of gas just minutes before Little was shot and killed. Gutierrez was standing just a couple of feet away from the man in a well-lit room. But the problem with Gutierrez's witness account is that the man he described could not have been Jamie Snow. He described a tall, thin man with a scar on his chin and an earring. Jamie, of course, has no scars on his face, nor has he ever had his ears pierced. Based on the early records, it would seem that Jerry Gutierrez would be Jamie's greatest ally at trial. But unfortunately for Jamie, Gutierrez's testimony didn't amount to a hill of beans. By the time the trial rolled around in 2001, the question that we're here to answer today is what changed.
0: Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Require Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply.
1: The best way to explain the evolution of Jerry Gutierrez's story is to start at the beginning and end with his trial testimony. Jerry's first contact with police was on the night Bill was killed. He returned to the station after hearing that something had happened on the radio. At least that's what he said in his first report. Remembering the strange man that he had seen on that very night, Gutierrez thought that he had better go back and share that information with the police. Detective Crowe interviewed Gutierrez, and this is the statement that he gave. Quote, I stopped at the gas station at about 8.05 p.m. and put $3 of gas in my car and then went inside to pay the attendant. The attendant was not friendly like he usually is. This time he seemed nervous and upset and didn't say a word the whole time I was in there. He looked at me real strange, and when I handed him the money, he almost dropped it. There was another man in the station at this time, and he was standing at the end of the counter where you would go if you were going to go behind the counter where the attendant was standing. End quote. Now, pay close attention to the details in this statement. And remember, this is just a couple of hours after the incident occurred. He's not trying to remember something from years or even days ago. The incident happened that night. In this first statement, Jerry says that it was 8.05 p.m. when he entered the gas station. And remember, it was dark that night before 7 p.m. There was no confusing the incident with the early afternoon or any other time. It was dark, and it was, according to Gutierrez, 8.05 p.m. Crow asked Gutierrez to describe the strange man that he had seen. Quote, He was a white male, about 23 or 24 years old, with shoulder-length brownish-blondish hair. He had a mustache that was not thin or very thick, sort of medium. And he had what appeared to be a two- or three-day growth of facial hair, as if he hadn't shaved. He had about a one-inch scar on the right side of his chin, and he was wearing a small gold ball earring in his left ear. He had on a black baseball cap with a logo on the front that was in yellow or white. He was wearing an army green t-shirt under a black motorcycle-type jacket. The jacket was waist-length with a belt at the bottom and shoulder tabs. The jacket zipped up the front and had a flap that folded over starting at the left shoulder and went down towards the waist. The subject kept his hands in his pockets but took them out once to pull out a box of Marlboro cigarettes and lit one up. The subject was wearing blue jeans but I didn't see his shoes. Now, we've heard this description before, so I won't beat it to death. But very quickly, he saw a white guy in his early 20s with a scar on the right side of his chin, a gold earring in his left ear, a black baseball cap, and a biker-style leather jacket. So what we have here is a very accurate description just hours after the incident. Crow then goes on to prompt Jerry to continue, quote, Will you continue with your statement? Gutierrez. Yes, neither one of them spoke while I was in the station. And I have seen the other guy before, but I can't remember where. Crow, What did you do after leaving the station? Gutierrez. I drove home and heard about the shooting on the radio, and I came back to the Clark station and talked to the police that was there. Some things to note here. First of all, where Gutierrez says that he went after leaving the station and how he heard about the incident. He says that he drove home and heard about the situation on the radio. I also think it's worth noting that Jerry says that he has seen this man before, but can't place exactly where. This is not the last time that Gutierrez is going to cross paths with the man that he saw at the Clark station that night. Jerry's next encounter with the police was later that night, into April 1st at this point. This is when he met with the sketch artist to create the composite drawing that we've discussed previously, and also when he picked suspect number BP-6345 out of a photo array. The April 1st report reads, quote, At about 0140 hours, Officer Pilo informed me that Gerardo Gutierrez had also identified mug number BP-6345, first to Officer Newton, and then to him. I asked Gerardo if that was the suspect, and he answered in the affirmative. Now, just to refresh your memory, the report says that Gutierrez also identified the mugshot because Danny Martinez had identified the same man earlier that night. If you'll recall, Martinez selected two photos stating it's between these two. Next up, Gutierrez meets with Detectives Crow and Thomas three days later on April 4th. In this interview, the detective showed Gutierrez a catalog of Harley clothes to see if he could ID the jacket that the man was wearing he does select a jacket that he believes is the same style as the one the man was wearing on the night of the murder. During this meeting, Jerry again recounts his encounter with the strange man. He says that he was standing right next to him, and he describes the man as being about the same height as a friend of his, six foot two and about 165 pounds. Well, he doesn't really say about 165 pounds. It's kind of strange, so let me just read it to you right from the report. Quote, he was the same height and weight as a friend of his. This friend is six foot two and weighs 165 pounds. And friend just gained 2 pounds, so now weighs 167 pounds. End quote. I'm not even sure what to make of this very oddly specific statement, or why Jerry knows that his buddy just gained 2 pounds, but there it is. Again, in this report, he says long, thin legs and hair down to his shoulders, more brown than blonde. And again, he describes the scar on the man's chin, although in this report, it says the one-inch scar was on the left side of the man's chin. In his statement on the night of the murder, he said that it was on the right side. But to be fair, I think that Gutierrez may have just been mixing up his right from left, meaning it was his right, not the suspect's right. And I say this because in the interview, Crow asked him to show him where the scar was, and Jerry touches him on the left side of his chin. But as the interview goes on, he again tells investigators that he's sure he has seen this man before, but cannot remember when or where. And then we run into our first problem with Jerry Gutierrez's story. Remember in his first rendition, he said that he left the gas station, drove home, and heard about the incident on the radio. In this interview, he says that he, quote, was at the station at about 8 p.m. because he drove straight home and when he walked in the door, it was 8.12 p.m. He watched TV and then saw a report on Channel 31 and then he went back to the Clark station and told them about what he had seen, end quote. Now, this is just four days later and the story has already changed from hearing about the murder on the radio to hearing about the crime on TV, on the Channel 31 news report to be exact. Now, we do get more detailed descriptions of the encounter in this report. Gutierrez tells the detectives, quote, When he handed two $1 bills and a dollar in change to the attendant, the attendant dropped the change and Gutierrez noticed the attendant's hand shaking as he reached for the money. The attendant never said a word even when Gutierrez asked him how things were going, end quote. So at this point, we're within three days of the incident, and Jerry is consistently saying that the encounter occurred around 8 p.m., His purchase was for $3 in gas. He paid partially with change, and Bill appeared to be very nervous and never said a word. And then we don't hear from Gutierrez again for about two weeks, when he called in a tip to the Bloomington Police Department. On April 17th, Jerry Gutierrez called the Bloomington PD with a tip. And I believe this tip could be critically important to us for a number of reasons. This is what the report says. Jerry Gutierrez states he was walking in the parking lot of the McDonald's on West Washington Street in Peoria when he saw what he says is the same person as the composite he gave to Officer Sanders. He stated the person he saw last night had shorter hair and no mustache, The person was wearing a white sports-type jersey and blue and white low-cut Nike tennis shoes with white laces. Gutierrez also states he was able to see the scar on the right side of the chin. The suspect was seen driving a late-70s reddish-maroon Chevy Nova 2-door, but was unable to obtain a plate number. States the person saw him and acted suspicious, walking to the car, and quickly left. So the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is, Did Gutierrez see the same person that he saw at the Clark station on the night of Bill's murder? Assuming that Jerry is making every attempt to be honest, if he's lying, then none of this matters, obviously, but I really can't determine any motivation for him to lie. He went to the police on both occasions, the night of the murder and when he called in the tip. He never pointed the finger at any individual, as you would expect if he was trying to frame someone else, and he's pretty clear about the details that he wasn't able to obtain. Namely, the license plate number. So, if he's lying, the only reason that I could imagine that he would do that would be for attention. But that really seems like a bit of a stretch. So, if we assume Gutierrez is telling the truth, then what are the odds that he did in fact see the same man that he saw on Easter Sunday? Well, I think that we can rule out a misidentification of someone who just had similar characteristics. This guy had no mustache, his hair was shorter, and he was wearing a sports jersey which is quite a difference from the leather motorcycle jacket he described the first time. So what's left to identify the man? Height, weight, eyes, facial structure, and that scar on his chin. I think that when you consider what Jerry had to look past, in order to consider that he was looking at the same man, And add to that the fact that in both of his previous interviews, he told police that he had seen the man before. In my opinion, again, if we assume that he's being honest, Gutierrez likely did spot the same man that was in the station with a very nervous Bill Little just minutes before he was shot and killed that evening at McDonald's in Peoria. For reference sake, Peoria is about a 30-40 to minute drive from Bloomington. So, with that being said... If we can assume that this was indeed the same man, then what does this ID tell us? If this was the same guy, it would seem that he made a conscious effort to alter his appearance. Shaving his beard and cutting his hair, not to mention the change in wardrobe. I think it makes perfect sense for someone who took part in a murder and knows that someone saw him face to face to do whatever they can to distance themselves from the crime scene area and make some modifications to their appearance so that they don't look just like the composite sketch that's being blasted all over the news. The lead really does seem very promising. Unfortunately, it went nowhere. In the report under Investigative Findings, it reads as follows. Gutierrez was shown numerous pictures collected for this investigation that were placed into a photo album. He was unable to identify anyone from the pictures shown. All leads are exhausted. Lead number 219-A is cleared at this time. That's it? Jerry didn't see any pictures in their book that looked like the guy, so they just give up on it? This is incredibly frustrating. Given all of the information that the Bloomington PD had at this time, this was by far and away the absolute most promising lead that they had. The one and only eyewitness who came within inches of a man in the station just moments before the murder just told them that he saw the guy again. He had changed his appearance and got the hell out of there the second he saw Gutierrez. If this guy isn't the killer, it would seem that it's extremely likely that he knows who the killer is, and Jerry did give them some useful information. He gave them the color, make, and model of the vehicle that the man was driving. The investigators should have at least started there. Do a quick DMV check for a list of names that own red Chevy Novas. I wouldn't say that a 70s Nova was a rare car in the early 90s, but it also wasn't a common car. I have to believe that that list would have been very manageable. But like I said... The lead was cleared because they didn't put the right picture in front of their witness. A month later, things start to look a little shady for Gutierrez. Apparently, in May, he was arrested on a battery charge. While in the county jail, an inmate reached out to the police with this tip. Informants stated that while he was incarcerated in the McLean County Jail on 5 91 a Puerto Rican male inmate in cell G2 was stating he was at the scene of the shooting. He told people that he got free gas out of the deal. The unidentified male was supposedly in on a battery complaint and received a personal recognizance bond. The detectives obtained the inmate roster for May 17th, and it's included in the report, although it's redacted, but we know from what I'm about to read to you that it was Jerry Gutierrez in cell G2. From the report. On May 28, 1991, DCI agent Cox and I met with Gutierrez at his residence in Normal to speak with him about his incarceration in the county jail. Gutierrez stated he was in jail for a warrant on a battery charge that he claims he did not receive a notice for. He was asked what area of the jail he was in, and he replied he was in G-Block with about four or five others. When asked if he made any comments about the Clark Oil shooting to anyone, he first denied making any comments about the shooting to anyone. He then stated he was mad because he was arrested for no reason, and another reason was that he had been drinking on the day he was arrested. Gutierrez then admitted telling the two policemen that arrested him about being a witness in the shooting and showed them my business card. Gutierrez later stated that an inmate asked him if he was there and he told the person that he was. I asked him if he had made any comments and he said no. After several minutes, Gutierrez still denied making any comments about getting free gas or having any conversation with anyone while in the county jail. I advised Gutierrez that if he remembered anything about his conversation in the county jail to contact me as soon as possible. Approximately 30 minutes later, Gutierrez came to the police department to speak with me. Gutierrez stated he remembers talking to one of the inmates in a cell block, but does not know the person's name. He stated the inmate had asked him if he was there when the shooting occurred, and Gutierrez told him that he was. The inmate then said something about taking some free gas, and Gutierrez said that he did take some gas. Gutierrez told me after he made the statement to the other inmate, he told him that he was kidding. He then explained that he made the comment because he was still mad about being arrested, and says it was the alcohol making him say that. He went on to say that everything else he had said prior to this incident is the truth. This lead, L-268A, is considered cleared. According to Gutierrez, the conversation did occur, although he says that he was just joking. So there he sits, mad and drunk, and he tells an inmate that he, quote, got some free gas out of the deal. And that's after he flashed Detective Crowe's business card to the arresting officers, which I took as him trying to catch a break for himself. But now we really have something to consider. We've been leaning towards the idea that the first no-sale of the night was Gutierrez's $3 gas purchase. Since Jerry says he was there at 8.05, there was no $3 purchase on the tape, and we have that no-sale at 8.06. But then, six weeks later, Gutierrez tells someone that he got some free gas that night. So, either he was lying to the inmate, he was lying when he gave his statement, or something in between the two. Like, maybe Bill got nervous, dropped his change, hit the no-sale, and just sent him away without paying. At this point, with him being so all over the place, I don't know that we can really make a determination, one way or the other, as to what actually happened. Jerry is out of sight and out of mind for about five months. He was called back into the station on October 17th to look at several more pages of photos. And again, he was unable to identify anyone out of the arrays. Then, five days later, Crow interviews him again. This time, the report says he wants to review Jerry's statement with him. The report reads as follows. Gutierrez stated that he still remembered the suspect and what he looked like. Gutierrez stated that he remembers the scar on the suspect's chin looked fairly fresh as he could remember that there were still stitch marks on the scar. Gutierrez was shown the sketch that he did with Officer Tom Sanders and he stated it was a good sketch and showed the suspect's high, prominent cheekbones. Gutierrez stated that the only other thing he remembers about the incident that he witnessed at the Clark station is that while he was pumping gas into his car, he looked inside and saw the suspect waving and pointing his finger at Billy Little. So at this point, six months after the murder, Jerry Gutierrez thinks that he's done with the Bill Little case. And he was. For eight years. Until Detective Dan Katz took the reins of the investigation and he had his sights set on Jamie Snow. You've heard a short portion of this interview before, but today I want you to hear about 10 minutes of it. Throughout this 1999 interview, you're going to hear a lot of details that don't line up with Jerry's original 91 statements, namely where he went after leaving the gas station, how he knew to return to the station, and most importantly, the time that he was at the station. Now,
0: Jerry, back in 1991, where were you living? I was living in 1402 East College. It was city uh, Normal. Normal, Illinois. Now, Easter Sunday, March thirty first, nineteen ninety one. Were you living in a Normal, Illinois? Yes, that's
2: correct.
0: Did you talk to the police on that day? Uh, what day? On uh, March thirty first, nineteen
2: ninety one. Uh, yes, I believe it's when this thing happened.
0: And why did you talk to the police,
2: uh, regardless to the, uh,
0: the homicide what happened? Okay. And you, what did you tell the police on that day?
2: Uh, I told Saki you know what, uh, that I was there a little bit earlier, uh, pumping a little bit of gas, and uh, I saw this uh, person trying to get in, kind of argue with the uh, curve inside, and uh, he was really kind of nervous uh, the curve and uh, it's just something you know I had a feeling that. Something was not right. I, I thought at first it was just a regular game with a friend with friend or something like that. But uh, absolutely, that's what I was thinking about that.
0: So you were at the gas station earlier that day. Is that correct? That's correct. Why were you there?
2: Uh, I was just pumping a little bit of gas to how, try to make it where I was going.
0: How much gas?
2: Uh, approximately about around $3. $3. And,
0: and where were you going? When you stopped there, where were you heading to?
2: Oh, I was heading to, uh, to uh, Bloomington. Uh, I, I picked up my friend, which uh, I'm not really recording exactly. Uh, I I was supposed to pick him up. up. Uh, this place uh, used to call called metropole, mm-hmm. or um, his house. But uh, we were heading that way uh, to uh, Bloomington downtown. Now, where does he live at, this friend you were picking up? Uh, he used to live, uh, well, I can tell you, Mulberry. Mal- Mulberry? Yeah, <coughs> Excuse me. I now, now okay. after, after
0: you went to the gas station, you put gas in your car. Yeah. You went inside to pay for gas. There's two people inside. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. One is the person that you knew as, as being the clerk, right? You talked to him before? Yes, that's correct. The other person, you ever see that person before? No, never before. Could you describe to me what that person was wearing?
2: Well, it my mind right now. is was just a tall, tall person, brown, uh, the front I Remember right now, probably around six foot tall, six foot one, something like that, with, uh, wearing a leather black coat, uh, Harley, you know, jackal and uh, uh, that's pretty much what I remember right now, that he had on, I don't know where to recall. I think he had a blue jean. Uh, but I do remember, before I walked out the place like that, uh, Yeah, I, I recall seeing uh, his face from the angle that I was walking out the place. And uh, the thing that I, that I saw him, it was a skirt. A scar, um, uh, right or left uh, side of his face.
0: Now, when you see a scar, just—is it something that you just noticed, like it was a fresh cut or something?
2: Uh, yeah, that was pretty fucked up, kind of So it was out. like it was like a new. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. Injury. much. Yeah, like a new injury. Uh, you can tell, you know, when it's you know, an yeah. old injury, when it's kind of old yeah. injuries, but. The way I describe uh, that I saw that because I was not really far away from uh, from this person. I was just uh, walking out the place, this place that are like really sure. small. Yeah.
0: Now, when you were inside, i want to try and help you because it's been nine years. When you walk in the door, there's a counter on your left,
2: yeah, right, yeah.
0: and that's where uh, the attendant stood behind to take the money. That's correct. Where was this other person you saw? Where was he
2: in relationship Uh, to the counter? Yeah, he was kind of all pushed up to the the end of the counter. All the way to the inside. Uh,
0: So he was near the end of the counter. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, he was all the way kind of to the inside. The farthest inside he he can stay.
0: Now, when you got there, you put gas in your car. Was there any other cars in the lot?
2: Uh, honest, no. I don't really recall any, any other vehicle in the area. Roger. Uh-huh. Okay.
0: So there's no cars in the lot. Do you know what kind of car you were driving that day? Me? Yeah.
2: Uh, yes, I have a uh, kind of 10, uh, eighty-five Chevy Celebrity.
0: So you leave then and go, to, you can't remember if you picked up your friend at the Metropole, but you went there or you might have just went to his apartment or house. Yeah, right?
2: that was kind of one of the two that I can, I'm sorry, but I can never remember if I went there or, or I went straight to his
0: house. About what time was it that you put gas in your
2: car? Around 7 o'clock around maybe
0: right after or probably a few minutes before, but around 7 o'clock. Is there any reason why that sticks in your mind that around 7
2: o'clock time? Uh, no, not, not in specific. It's just the, the time that I recall that it was what it was. Not, nothing special. Nothing.
0: Special. So you go to a friend's house.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How long do you think it was before you left your friend's house? then? Uh, you repeat that, please? After you put gas in your car, yeah. You either went to the Metropole or your friend's house on Mulberry Street, correct? Yeah,
2: that's correct.
0: How long do you think you stayed there before you left?
2: Oh, before I returned, uh, approximately around an hour and a half or two hours, something okay. like that.
0: And then when you when you start going home from your friend's house. Something drew your attention back to the gas station, is that correct?
2: Uh, yes. yes, definitely. Yes. What was that? There was a lot of movement there, a lot of police, a lot of ambulance, a lot of just a lot of lights going
0: on. Sure. So you went back to the Freedom Station, excuse me, Park Gas Station, then, is that right?
2: Uh, I parked probably, when I was right by. I parked approximately about half a block away. Because that was, you know, was
0: that? Uh, and you walked up there, talked to a policeman or something?
2: Uh, yes, I did. I did, I did. I'm telling what I saw earlier. I don't know if they got something to do with it or not, but uh, i just described what I saw. And then
0: after you talked to the police officer, the uh, detective finally talked to you? Or did you talk to the detective first?
2: Uh, no, I talked to the detective first. Uh, and then... That same night, we went to uh, the headquarters, to the uh, Bloomington police station to uh, make an uh, what you call them, uh, a uh, picture, you know, made, draw a picture to describe uh, the nose, their eyes, the eyebrows that I don't remember. So, and uh, we take probably there until 05 in the morning.
0: Long day, and then you finally got to go back home, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, after you left the police department, and you did a composite, Yeah. A composite. police took a statement from you. Yeah. Now, in that, when the police took their statement from you, you said that you thought you were at the gas station around 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying you thought you were at the gas station around closer to 7 o'clock. Which do you think is correct?
2: The only thing that I can probably tell you right now was this way around between seven and I, I cannot really specifically tell you that was this time and this
0: minute. I, I can. Now, if I tell you that when we went through cash register receipts,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you said you bought how much gas? About three dollars when we go through the cash register receipts, there's actually a, a, a slot there. sitting at 6:55, uh, I believe it was. Is mm-hmm. somebody came in and bought three dollars worth of gas? That's it. There's no other three dollars worth of gas throughout the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you saying that maybe that if that's what the receipt says, that's correct, and you were just wrong about the time when you were there? That's very possible.
1: After listening to the entirety of Gutierrez' 99 police interview, I'm starting to wonder if his witness account factors into this case at all. The store manager, Donna Bernard, testified at the trial that there was, in fact, a $3 gas purchase made on the register tape at 6.55 p.m. The sun set that day at 6.19 p.m., Epstein didn't kill himself, and civil twilight occurred at about 6.50 Meaning, it wasn't pitch dark at 6.55, but it was close. I think that most people would describe the scene as nighttime or dark at 5 minutes to 7 that evening. So it's at least feasible that Jerry confused 8 o'clock with 7 o'clock. And then there's also an issue of timing. In Gutierrez's second statement, he said that he knew it was around 8 o'clock when he was at the station because it was exactly 8.12 p.m. when he got home that night. In this 1999 recording, we finally get to hear Jerry's home address. I mapped out the route from the Clark Station to his house, and it's about a 2.7-mile drive. According to Google Maps, it would take at least nine minutes to get there, meaning that if it really was 8.12 when he got home, then he would have had to have left the Clark Station no later than 8.03, before the no-sale on the register tape. Now, there's still a lot of factors that can go into that, Maybe Bill just took his money and waited to press the no-sale until a while after he was gone. But I'm definitely at this point calling all of this into question. I mean, his story has changed so many times, I don't know how much weight we can put into any of his statements at this point. First, he heard about the incident on the radio. Then it was on TV. He went straight home. And then in 1999, he was hanging out with his friend. Unfortunately, the reality is that it's entirely possible that Jerry Gutierrez is nothing more than a red herring. Once Jamie Snow was on trial for his life, the prosecution capitalized on Gutierrez's inconsistencies. I've wondered since the beginning of this case how an eyewitness account from someone who saw a man who looked nothing like Jamie Snow didn't equal an acquittal. But this is how. Jerry's trial testimony barely resembled his original statement of seeing a man who appeared to be intimidating Bill just moments before the murder, at the same time as the first sale, We learn in the beginning of direct examination that Gutierrez has quite a record himself. A 1991 burglary conviction, a 1990 retail theft conviction, and a 2000 theft conviction. So already, right out of the gate, he's looking more like a suspect really than a witness. And then, Tina Griffin begins asking about the night of the murder. Right up front, Gutierrez lets the jury know that he doesn't really remember much about the night. He then testifies that he thinks that he was at the station between 7 and 8 o'clock. He puts gas in his car, then goes over to a friend's house in Bloomington to play pool in his basement. But before he left, he went into the station to pay for his gas. This is the story that we've heard several times, but he does give a little more detail here that might be important. Jerry testified that when he walked into the station, the man standing at the counter seemed like he didn't want to be seen. He says that he turned his back to Gutierrez when he walked in. Then we hear the same story about Bill being nervous and the shaking hands, but he adds that when Bill dropped the change, some of it fell onto the floor. And Jerry says that when he left, the money was still on the floor. Bill hadn't picked it up. That's important for a couple of reasons. Number one... We know about Gina Luna's experience when she was robbed back in December. She used the distraction of picking money up off the floor to press the silent alarm. And number two, there was no change found on the floor at the crime scene after Bill's body was discovered. The money on the floor could account for not only the alarm being triggered, but also for any of the later no-sales. no sales Gutierrez goes on to explain that he doesn't remember why he went back to the station. Might have been that he heard about the incident on the news, maybe the radio, might have just seen all the police cars at the station on his way home, he's really not sure anymore. Then he describes the man that he saw, again highlighting the scar on his chin, and basically in its entirety, Jerry Gutierrez's testimony did absolutely nothing to help Jamie's defense. Essentially, he ended up testifying that he doesn't remember much about what went on that night, and coupled with Donna Bernard's testimony about the $3 gas purchase occurring before 7pm, the jury was left with a witness account of a man who saw someone in the station an hour before the crime even occurred. And Tina Griffin was sure to highlight this in her closing arguments, stating that the evidence proves that Jerry Gutierrez did not see the suspect at 8.05pm. But, then, miraculously, her closing statement takes a really strange turn. She ends up spinning Gutierrez's testimony to support and corroborate an informant's testimony, Bruce Rolland, who's one of the men who testified that Jamie Snow confessed to him, which we'll be covering in two weeks on Truth and Justice. Don't forget that there will be no Truth and Justice episodes this week. Mike and I will be off work next week on our annual November vacation. We do, however, have something available for you to listen to. Last week, Zach Weaver and I recorded an episode of Bob and Weave covering the pending execution of Rodney Reed. If you're unaware, Rodney Reed, who I believe is an innocent man, is scheduled to be executed in Texas on November 20th. That episode will be available on the Bob and Weave feed and on the Bob and Weave YouTube channel tomorrow, Monday, if you're interested in hearing about that case. If not, we will be back for our episode 17 follow-up on Friday, November 22nd. Thanks for listening. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truth, justice pod. And my personal Twitter handle is at Bob Ruff truth. And you can even follow Mike at mbussing 89 for more personal interactions. Feel free to follow me on Instagram at truth, justice pod. And don't forget that we always have our 24 seven voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.